you have your Bibles, would you turn to James chapter 2 this morning? We've been working through the book of James for a couple of weeks now, and last week we were in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. In those verses, and just those two verses we covered last week, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In those two verses, we looked at a couple of points there. The first one is that our thinking is not always reality. Whatever situation you might be in right now, probably chances are on your own, by yourself, your thinking about the situation is not 100% correct. That's why the Bible says that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That's why the Bible says we should be involved in a local church and that we should have brothers and sisters around us, that they can bring clarity and wisdom and discernment about a situation. How do we go about it? What we're to do? That's one reason I'm excited about the book study coming up Thursday in our men's ministries. It goes through how to use the Bible for every situation that comes up because our thinking is not always reality. Secondly, we saw last week that God's not fooled by our empty actions. Attendance does not equal adoration. Just simply showing up and coming to church does not mean we love the Lord with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And we went through a list of these actions that sometimes men and women do thinking that they're accomplishing what God says he requires of us. But God is not fooled by empty actions we saw how the tongue is really a true test of man's religion. A lot of times we judge people by what they say. Scripture says we should also judge them by what they don't say. That can be a great indicator of if someone loves the Lord, of how well they bridle their tongue. We also saw that Christians should put their money where their mouth is. That if we really love the Lord, that we should pursue to honor the Lord with our giftings, with our treasures, our talents. And that that's one area so many times that we as believers, we need to implement and we need to work through for this world to see. In James chapter 2, he moves to a practical example of when this was not being done in the church, where they were missing the mark. So as we come to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, would you pray with me as we begin? God, we want to be doers of your word, not hearers only. God, we don't want to be deceived God, we want to be believers that bring you glory in every area of our life. God, we pray for your word this morning that it may have its effect as your word promises that it will. God, may we be quick to hear your word. God, may it confront areas in our life as I believe every single one of us struggle with what we're going to see in this text this morning to one degree or another in different areas. So God, I, I pray that we may see areas in our life that pertain to us, that we may see the general principles at work here and be broken over different areas in our life and help us to come to you, repent of those things, and to change. So God, I pray for your word. I pray for this sermon. May it be glorifying to you. Holy Spirit, may you do the work only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, My brothers, show no partiality among you, as you hold faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So what does Scripture mean when it says it says no partiality? What does partiality mean? Well, if this is an unfair biasness or in favor of one thing versus the other, partiality can be called favoritism. Often in the news today, different news networks might favor one side of the issue or the other. If you watch any news, you know this channel might favor this, and this channel might favor that. Well, Scripture says, as believers, we should show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 2 by giving an example of when they've shown partiality to others. He says in verse 2, For example, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, your church service, right? And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, So the text describes really two types of people here. And if you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and you tell him, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on the ground at my feet. Now this is a general epistle written to churches to be circulated. And the amount of time that James gives to this issue shows us this was actually something that was taking place something that needed to be addressed. This wasn't a hypothetical. This was actually taking place in the churches, and often it does in our lives as well. So imagine you're leading a church service, and you have a love for the gospel, a love for Jesus Christ. You're trying to grow it. You need volunteers. You need people in the church. You need finances. You need a bigger space. You need everything. And they're in a small home church, and it's your home, and people are coming in, and you want these people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your room's beginning to fill up as the gospel's been doing work and people have been hearing about it and they're coming to hear the good news. And in walks a prominent, well-known in the community, businessman in fine clothes, gold ring, gold necklace, and here he comes into the room. I mean, at this point, you don't even feel like your house is worthy for someone of this stature to come in, let alone a refreshment that you have or don't have. And now he's coming in and you're going to share with him the gospel. It would be really easy to justify, well, I don't want to offend him by having him sit on the ground before I even share the gospel with him, which could be offensive anyways. I mean, you could think through a number of illustrations to justify your actions of treating him a little bit better than you might treat the person who's already dirty. I mean, the person who's already got dirt all over them because they live in the dirt, they sleep in the dirt, they don't have a house, yet the dirty person got there first and already had a chair, and it's your responsibility to divvy up the chairs, And so that was kind of the situation going on. But Scripture says that they made evil desires, that they made evil distinctions going on. We're going to see that in this next portion. And so this was a common issue going on in the church. And I want us to see the principles behind what James is getting at here of showing favoritism. So why is it such a big deal for us to show any kind of favoritism or partiality in the church? Well, this leads us to our first point And point number one, no one deserves to be shown honor but Christ himself. You might be thinking, well, of course that's true. He's God and we're men. But verse one makes it seem like if you show honor to anyone, you're actually stealing that honor from Jesus Christ himself. Look again in verse one. We're going to focus on the last four words in the verse. It says, my brother, show no partiality among you. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord of glory. When scripture says the Lord of all creation, it means all creation is his, right? When it says the Lord of lords, it means he is the Lord over every lords. All lords are under him. When scripture says he is the God of all peace, meaning all peace comes from him, is from him, he's the God of all peace. So here, in a discussion about showing favoritism and partiality and honor to one person and not another, James starts out at the very beginning and says, the Lord of glory. Meaning, he is the only one deserving of any honor or any glory to be shown to anyone. And so the gravest sin that they're making is not towards the rich man or the poor man. They're making it towards God because when they honor someone, they're actually dishonoring the Lord. Because he is the one, he is the Lord of glory. James is emphasizing that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of glory. He should receive all glory and honor. Everyone in that church assembly and everyone in this church assembly is in equal eyes of the Lord. Now, in reality, I know most of us often think pretty highly of ourselves and not highly of others. I know we might say that and say, well, I don't, that sounds harsh. I mean, who would really do that? But in reality, that's the case. I mean, how often do we think we're right versus somebody else? Or if they just had our perspective on it, they would change because it's the right perspective. Well, everyone in the church assembly is in the same boat according to the Lord. Therefore, we should not make those distinctions either. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. We can easily make distinctions among men and women. We can look up to others in different ways. Here's an example of my life this past week. The very first day I was working on this sermon and I saw this verse, the Lord of glory, on the way home for lunch. It had only been a couple hours working on this sermon. On the way home from lunch, out pulls beside me a brand new Rolls Royce. Okay, so I'm driving my little Ford. Rolls Royce slowly pulls onto the road. So what do we naturally do when we pull up to something like that? We look over, right? I heard a couple people say it. Maybe I'm the only one and some of you. Thanks for your honesty. But I look over and I see what kind of people drive a Rolls Royce? What do they look like? Do they look different than, than me? What are their ages? I mean, we, we look. We're making distinctions. Well, maybe you don't do it with new cars, but we certainly can easily do it with old cars, right? I mean, we see a junky car, and this isn't like a classic or an antique. This is just a really old car right? And it's all rusted out. We're wondering how it's even driving on the road. And we pull up to it and we might think, what kind of person drives a car like this? And we look in the window to see what kind of person that is. We're making distinctions and we do it all the time. This is why James reprimands them. We do this new clothes, old clothes, all different types of ways. Verse 4, have you not then made distinction among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? James is not teaching that we're not allowed to notice differences. We're naturally going to notice differences, torn clothes, new clothes, nice cars, old cars. We're going to notice those things, but we enter into sin when that distinction that we see brings us to what Scripture says, 
evil thoughts. This word in the Greek really means opinions, reasonings, or conclusions. So we see someone and we make a conclusion based on how we are to treat them based on their outward appearance. And scripture says it is evil. And we do it all the time. It's when we internally assume or treat someone by their external factors. So what conclusions or distinctions were being made in this scripture? Well, James focuses, and there's really two issues. They were treating rich visitors with great respect, and they were treating poor visitors with no respect. So in one instance, they were elevating someone to a higher level of honor than they should have, and they were treating the poor with no respect. So in both ways, they were entering into sin. They were catering to one and neglecting the poor which the verses before it says really true religion is to take care of those who are helpless and poor. What they did, we so often do as well. Create different classes of people. For instance, the rich class, the middle class, the poor class. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil thoughts? James continues on in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In their culture and in their time, it was often thought and assumed that The rich were blessed by God. The poor were cursed by God. Must have been something they were doing for why they were rich and why they were poor. And that thinking still exists in many parts of the world. Unfortunately, that thinking still exists here in the U.S. in many charismatic prosperity-type churches. They wrongly teach that if you are unhealthy, it's always due to a personal sin issue in your life or a faith issue in your life. They wrongly portray that if you're wealthy... You must be favored by God and living a godly life, having faith and just claiming that God should bless you because you're his child. But the delusion doesn't stop there. There's also people on the other extreme who take this verse out of context, literally, and they believe that wealthy people are always worldly people. That since scripture often talks about wealthy people as ungodly people, that all wealthy people must be ungodly people because they're pursuing things on this earth rather than things in heaven. So they think to be godly is really to be poor, or poor people are more like godly people. In our passage, we see a glimpse about what was occurring in James when it was written, and that culture believed that God blessed the rich, and we see God turning that system upside down. Often he was blessing the poor. And many times the rich were those who thought they already were right with God. Verse 6, this is why he says, kind of by the way, why would you treat this rich man this way? Are not the rich ones the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming God? Why would you honor him? And throughout the book of James, we see how the wealthy people were the ones taking Christians to court. And this was a situation that was prevalent in the early church. And unfortunately, as many churches can testify, still happen today. 
So what does it mean for us regarding wealth and being poor and how God interacts with those? Well, the summary really is this. Finances don't determine one faith. Finances don't determine one faith. Scripture teaches many times God blesses the poor in incredible ways. Scripture also teaches that God raises up those who are rich for his purposes and his glory as well. Over the past many years here at Family Church, we've seen both. We have experienced attacks by those who are extremely wealthy. And we have been supported and greatly blessed by those who have great wealth as well. We've also seen where God has greatly blessed those who had very little, but were faithful in the small things. So we should not allow someone's wealth or lack of wealth to determine how we treat them. But in a broader application, this verse is not just talking about wealth and how we treat those who are wealthy and those who are poor. It's a, it's a much greater discussion of how we treat others with distinction. Scripture says as believers we should make no distinction, which includes someone's financial state, but it also includes so much more. For example, what about their skin color? What about someone's skin color? Do we show a preference or a favoritism due to one's skin color? Now, I know we could make the argument, well, that's just how I grew up, and I didn't grow up around that skin color, so I'm more comfortable with this. And we all have these preferences, but when we become a believer in Jesus Christ, our preferences are thrown out the window because Jesus Christ has saved people not like himself, right? He didn't save people just like himself. He saved people not like himself, and likewise, we're to love others who are not like us. So do you make a distinction, church, about someone's race or their accent or what they look like? or how they dress, or where they come from, or what they wear, or if they have a tattoo or not? What about someone's occupation? Do we treat the bathroom janitor as well as we treat the CEO of the company? Or do we make distinctions? Would we serve the same meal for the CEO coming into our house as we would that bathroom janitor? how easy it is for us to make distinctions. And when we do so, we're stealing honor away that's only set aside for the Lord. So we've seen already why James makes such a big deal about distinctions being made within the church. Because this is the very place where there should be no distinctions. Because when we come here, we all come equal in God's sight. That there's not one of you better or worse. There's not one of you worth more value to the Lord than the other. We're equal standing before the Lord. The very place where there should be no distinction because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that glory we should reserve for him and him alone. But there's a few more reasons why in these verses we see we should not have distinction. Verse 5, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen James alludes to the doctrine of election here regarding our salvation. We see in verse 7, it says, By which you were called, the name by which you were called, meaning called out, chosen by God. So why does James, in a discussion about being partial or showing no distinction, bring up the doctrine of election? What does election have to do about showing favoritism? James says, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen In this discussion regarding election, there are two important points for us to see. 
The first point is that God is impartial. God is impartial, meaning God treats all rivals and disputants equally fair and just. He doesn't treat one better than he treats the other. So everybody in God's sight is on an equal playing field. We don't even comprehend this. We can't as humans because it, it doesn't come natural to us, but God sees everyone equal. Do we realize that God does not make any distinction among people? He's not as partial as we are. This is an attribute of God. We see this in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. It says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that you may be like him. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. James is raising the alarm here in the church service and to these Christians that when we make a distinction among people, that we are doing something God doesn't even do. In all of his power, in all of his perfection, in all of his might, honor and glory, God doesn't even choose to make distinction among us. He treats everyone the same. Just as we might treat a police officer better than we might treat the janitor, God treats all people the same, and he calls us to as well. God's impartiality is taught throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, we see it. In 2 Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat appointed judges, and he reminds these newly appointed judges, it says this, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. James is saying the only distinction that we're ever given in Scripture regarding men is the distinction between us as humans and God. That's the only distinction we're ever given is sinful man, holy creator. Broken man, complete sovereign Lord. Lover of darkness, that's us. Creator of light and good the Lord. So there's not different levels of mankind. There's only one race of people, the race of people described by Romans 5. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So scripture gives us a picture of who we are. We're all broken individuals. We've broken God's law, not just once, not just twice, multiple times. We're deserving of punishment because of our sin that we willingly do. So in God's sight, all of us are evil, and God is not partial. He's perfectly impartial, which is incredible news if we're innocent, right? That's incredible news. If I'm innocent and there's someone guilty and God treats us equally, he sees he's innocent, he's guilty, he's going to be punished, he's going to be rewarded. But the problem is God is perfectly impartial, and he's perfectly just. So he treats everybody the same. We're all guilty, and we're all deserving of judgment because when sin happens, there must be a punishment for sin. So James is really getting at how can we treat others differently because you've been saved. That's his point. How did you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord? How did you get saved? Because if God's impartial and he's a judge, all of us should be condemned to hell. And this is where James says, time out. God is perfectly fair in his judging of us. 
He makes no distinction, yet you have received salvation. How did that happen? And he goes to election. He said something happened to you outside of yourself and it came from the Lord. And it leads us to our next point. God is not obligated to show anyone mercy. He's not obligated. Yet he does so according to his own will, not your merit. This illustration James drives at in verse 5 shows that God is not obligated to do anything for us. He does it out of his own mercy. And praise God, he has given us mercy. Being here this morning, being able to be in fellowship with one another, being able to worship the Lord, being able to hear others sing praises to God, having a copy of his word that we can read throughout the week, that we know we've been saved, that we have eternal life right now. We've been given such grace and mercy. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say God is indebted to you or that God is indebted to me. Anything he does or any mercy he shows is because he has chosen to do so. He's not a genie in a bottle that we make him do what we want him to do unless he himself is first willing to do it. We see this incredible truth laid out very clearly in Romans chapter 9, often titled God's Sovereign Choice. In Romans 9, 14, it says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. How much were we involved in, in those scriptures that I read? Zero. It's all about what God wants to do and how God wants to do it. And he's impartial, meaning he doesn't treat one of you like you're going to receive salvation and you're not because of you. He does it because of himself. And that's James' point, is that they're making distinctions about individuals in their church service based on external factors. And they're saying, God doesn't even do that with you. God did not choose you because you were rich or poor, he, good or bad, or any other reason except his desire to show you mercy and grace. So one person doesn't receive it because he's worthy of it and another not. None of us are worthy of it. So any mercy and grace he shows us is in accordance to his will. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. So we can't boast about our salvation. We can't brag about it. So neither can we judge others about our salvation either. And this is why James brings up election as they're showing distinction amongst people in their church. He says the Lord doesn't even do that. As we move in verses 8 through 12, we find a command and an exhortation and a warning in these verses. In verse 8, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. And this is followed closely by warnings that we see in verses 9 through 12. But, but church, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So scripture is saying we can't be believers and continue living a life of showing distinction. If we're living in a life of showing distinction of people all the time, 
we don't understand how God has saved us. We don't understand what God has done in us. It's completely contradictory to live a life that way because you don't understand what God did in spite of who you were. And if that's the case, there's no reason that someone's skin color or their clothing or what they drive or how much money they have should sway us to treat them differently because God didn't treat us differently than what we deserve. He showed us mercy, grace, and love, even though we deserved hell. He goes on, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This leads us to our next point. To break one of God's laws is to break them all. To break all of God's laws. That's how perfect our judge is. Perfect judge. Perfect God. He will not overlook one single thing. Which is incredible news except we're lawbreakers. Which is horrible news until that salvation aspect comes in. God's commands are like a mirror. If there's any break in the mirror, it distorts the perfect picture. Whether it's a large break or a hairline fracture, it distorts the picture. And that's how perfect God is. Even a hairline fracture in a mirror distorts the picture of who God is to where it's so unrecognizable that that's not even a picture of God. So imagine you looking at a mirror and there's a hairline fracture. You think, well, I can put up with that. I'm not going to replace the whole mirror because there's a tiny hairline fracture in the top right corner. I can perfectly see me. But God says, and James says, if there's even a small, tiny hairline fracture, it so distorts God's commands to where it's not even recognizable to be God. Because there's no such thing as a almost perfect holy God. No, it's perfect or he's not God at all. And so scripture says when we break one of God's commands, we break all of God's commands because it breaks that perfect picture of who he is. So it's not that we're pretty good. It's that if we've broken even one of his commands, we've broken the whole thing. This is why we needed a perfect Savior who would come and live a perfect life in obedience, that he would live a life of righteousness and fulfill the requirement of righteousness so that we would become like him when we die, that we would turn to Jesus Christ and trust in his blood for forgiveness of sins, but also trust in the righteousness that he lived for a perfect life that when Christ sees me, he sees Christ's righteousness, that he fulfilled the law for me as well. That's what we celebrate with Christ's coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 13 in James 2 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This leads us to our last point this morning. To show no mercy is to receive no mercy. Or to state another way, grace receivers are grace dispensers. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you understand that your salvation was not in part so much about you as it was about the Lord's mercy and goodness to you, it should change how we treat others. We can't go through life 
profiling individuals or racially charged or treating people differently because of how much wealth they have because God did not act that way towards us. We have received much grace. And so as grace receivers, we should be grace dispensers continually in our life. If you see someone who claims to be a Christian, but they dispense little grace, they have little patience for others, they either don't understand their sinfulness and they're immature, or most likely they're not a believer at all. If we show little mercy, it's an indicator that we don't understand God's mercy in our life. We see this in verses 8 through 12, where we're given a standard of love and impartiality that we can't possibly keep on our own. Scripture teaches we can't love others in the way God commands us to. So what does this look like in the passage that we're referring to? God says we're to love others that way. Well, in our own strength, we can't do that, which is why we have commands like 1 John 4, 19. We love because what, church? He first loved us. Exactly. We are to love because we've been loved first. We're to be forgivers because we have been forgiven first. We're to pursue others for Jesus Christ because we have been pursued first. We're to dispense grace often because we have been given much grace. We're not to show partiality to others because God did not treat us that way. That's why he hit so hard on election. So here's the summary and take home for us this morning. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, may we be careful not to make distinction, whether it be on someone's skin color, whether it be on their job, whether they're the janitor or the CEO, whether it be on what they wear, their age, that's a big one. There's so many areas where we might make distinction to another person. It's because we fail to recognize what God has so done in our life. We rob God of any honor that he deserves when we honor someone else more than somebody else. We steal that honor from the Lord, and he says, he is the Lord of glory. He's to be given all glory and honor. All of us are equal in each other's eyes and in God's eyes. None of us are better just because we might know more about the Lord than the other. Equal value in the Lord's eyes. He didn't choose one of you over your superiority to anybody else. It's all based on his mercy that he gave. So we may, may we be very careful and how we treat others, and how we make distinctions. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we thank you for loving us in such a way that, God, it's so alien to us, because so often my love is determined by somebody else's worthiness to be loved. How hard it is to love others who are our enemies, who slander us, who hurt our reputation. God, but you, Scripture teaches that we were your enemies. We hated you. We ran to the darkness. We hated the light. We hated all things of God. Yet, even in the midst of that, you showed us honor, love, grace, mercy, and you pursued us. God, you did not show any distinction. God, I I pray that that may be a truth that sits in our hearts and minds for the rest of our lives, that you have not shown distinction, so neither can we show distinction. God, we know for all of us there are areas in our life where maybe because of a situation or a circumstance 
or how we grew up, that there may be roadblocks there, but help us to tear those down. Because as believers, we can't show partiality for any reason to somebody because of what you've done in our life. God, help us to be grace dispensers because you have shown us much mercy and grace. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life for us, who died in our place. God, we deserve that death, that punishment on the cross, but you took it for us so that if we just turn to you in faith and repentance, forgiving us, asking for forgiveness, that you can come and make us alive forever. God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that even right now they just may cry out to you in the quietness of their heart and say, God, I need you. Come into my life. Forgive me. Help me to be a new creation. Help me to be a Christian and to pursue living for you. God, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.